Hello and welcome to The Conversation Weekly. This week, we're speaking to a scientist who's using centuries-old recipes to recreate white makeup made from a type of lead. It's always depicted in the movies as this white mask, almost this ridiculous-looking face. And when we started making it in the lab, it doesn't look like that at all. We find out how dangerous this lead-based makeup really was to the European socialites who considered it the height of fashion in the 18th and 19th centuries. I'm Dan Reno in San Francisco. And I'm Gemma Ware in London. And you're listening to The Conversation Weekly, the world explained by experts. Mariah Gunning was renowned for her beauty. When Mariah and her sister Elizabeth entered London society in 1751, they were reportedly declared the handsomest women alive. She was penniless, but she was so beautiful, she managed to make this magnificent entree into London society. And the Earl of Coventry married her, despite her lack of money. But just nine years later, Mariah, or the Countess of Coventry, to give her her full title, was dead, aged just 27. And the gossip about her was that she died of lead poisoning. This is Fiona McNeil. I am a physics professor at McMaster University in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada. I study lead poisoning and I have recently become interested in 18th century white lead makeup. Lead has been used for millennia as the go-to way of making white pigment and the use of lead has a long history in cosmetics too, all the way back to the ancient Greeks and Romans. But lead we know is of course rather poisonous. It can cause all types of health problems, from dizziness to paralysis to blindness, and, in extreme cases, death. Fiona studies the health impacts of lead, in particular on women. I started out as a physicist building biomedical devices. That was what I did my PhD in. And what I found was that once I started building the devices, I wanted to use the devices to study women's health. So I built a system back in the early 90s to measure lead in bone non-invasively. And I started doing a bunch of studies looking at the effects of lead on women's health. And we showed that lead is really not very good for you. And there were some very specific health effects in women that we found. Women went through early menopause. And younger women, if they got pregnant after significant lead exposure they had a higher risk of stillbirth and miscarriage. But then Fiona had to deal with some of her own health issues. I had to take several months off work. And there's a period of time where they don't let you come back to work, but you're starting to feel better and a bit bored. And I started doing a lot of reading and poodling around the internet. That's when she came across the story that Mariah Gunning, Lady Coventry, was rumoured to have died of lead poisoning. Lead poisoning caused by her white lead makeup. The... Original references to Lady Coventry dying of lead poisoning, the only ones I've been able to find are actually from Horace Walpole in his letters. And he makes this passing reference to her where he says, Lady Coventry, like others, died from her makeup. There's a couple of other stories about her that are, you know, attached to makeup. There's a story that her husband got mad at her when they were 
in Paris and he he told her not to wear makeup and she came into the room wearing it and he jumped up from the table and in front of everyone scrubbed it off her face. But there was really no evidence beyond that apart from all this gossip. And I was reading all this stuff and of course I've got this background in lead poisoning and I thought this just can't be true. <laughs> How can you die from your your lead makeup? And then I discovered that Lord Coventry's mistress, Kitty Fisher, was also supposed to have died from makeup. So that was when I got really sceptical. I really thought I was just going to do some reading and find the answer. And then I realised nobody knew. So Fiona, well, she decided to do her own experiments. And I've been talking to her about what she's found so far. Take me to the lab. What was the question you first wanted to explore and how did you start? So the first question I wanted to explore was, can this makeup cross the skin? So the makeup's made from basic lead carbonate, cerusite, ceruse as they used to call it. And it is toxic if you eat it and inhale it, but you only actually absorb very small amounts of it that way. And so my question was, is there something in the making of the makeup that's changing this lead carbonate into another form of lead that can cross the skin? Because it, in of itself, if you just rubbed white lead on your skin, there's no way it should pass through in any quantity. So we started finding recipes and we created them. Where did you find these recipes? Oh, I, well, I just, you start finding these amazing recipes in in. A couple of places. So in the early modern period, there are all these books of secrets, books of household secrets. So, you know, it's, it's these household management books where you read them and it's telling you how to bake a cherry pie and how to cure a calf from bloat. And then in the middle of all of that, there are these recipes for how to make beautiful makeup for yourself. So, you, you know, you have these women who are boiling up lead white with wax on a stove. And then in a later period, when you get into the late 18th and early 19th century, then you get these books of toilet, toilette, you know, telling women how to do their hair and their face. And in there you find a number of recipes. So in, in those two places, searching around, I found at least 19 recipes. Wow, okay. Yeah, oh, there's a lot of them out there. And some of them have quite a lot of similarity. But there's different types. So there are some that are mixtures with oil. And there are some that are mixtures with wax. There's some interesting chemistry publications from the 19th century where chemists had actually analyzed these in their lab. And there's a few of these makeups, which are, they're all mixtures of the white lead with clear liquids. But there is also a home recipe that is telling women how to mix white lead with glycerin. Okay, so I got to ask, do you have a cookbook of sorts just full of white lead makeup recipes? I do, actually. It is electronic. And I, I have I have this list of different makeups. And we, you know, we give them all these names that make sense to us. So there's there's one I call Boston 1833 because it was found in a book published in Boston in 1833. But yeah, we, we have a whole list in the lab and we've made three of them so far. 
but two of them very, very simple and one a little more difficult to make because it's, it involves melting wax and mixing in oil and uh, then putting in the, the lead carbonate. So all of this, of course, we do in fume hoods because we're trying not to expose ourselves. There's a certain irony in being in the lab and, you know, we are suited to the nines, double gloved face mask goggles behind a fume hood and you realize you're making this thing that women just spread on their skin. And I was like, we're, we're <laughs> as far away from it as we can be. Okay, so you and your colleagues, you mix up some of these recipes, you get the white lead makeup, and then what? What do you do with them? So to test the toxicity, and by toxicity, I mean the skin absorption, because my hypothesis is that if these makeups can cross the skin, then they'd be much more dangerous. And what I wanted to know is, are there different types of makeup that could cross the skin? You know, are there some types that are more dangerous than others? So we use a system called France cells to do that. So this is two glass chambers, and we put pig skin between the two chambers. Pig skin's very like human skin, so it's a good model for that. And in the bottom chamber, we put phosphate-buffered saline, which is a good model for human tissue. And then we put the makeup on top of the skin. So any woman who wears makeup knows that there's a sort of feel and a texture of the makeup as it goes on your skin, and you have to find a way to blend it in. And we find, obviously, we can't put it on our skin and we, we can't touch it with bare skin. But by using silicon spatulas, we can see how we can move it around on pig skin. And it, it does work into the skin very like modern makeup. All right. You spread it onto the pig skin and then put it in these glass chambers. Then what happens? So we keep it all warm at 37 degrees Celsius, body temperature. And then we leave it for days, hours or days. And we look to see how much lead goes through the skin and ends up in the saline. We send the saline off for analysis afterwards. The reason we have to leave it for days is lead is very heavy, so it takes a long time. You're looking at diffusion here, the slow diffusion of molecules. And then because we were exploring the toxicity, I also had the question, why would you wear it? I mean, if there's a possibility that this thing is going to kill you, why would you do that? And I I've always thought that women aren't actually stupid. And so there had to be a reason. The benefit must have outweighed the risk. So we we started painting the pig skin with the makeup. And I have an optical spectrometer where we look at the reflected spectrum of light. So we we look at it at two angles. So there's there's two forms of reflection. There's specular reflection, which is like a mirror. And then there's diffuse reflection, which is more scattered light. So objects with a lot of specular reflection are glossy or shiny. And objects with a lot of diffuse reflection are kind of soft focus. And one of the things we find about this makeup is it has a lot of diffuse reflection. It's making everything on the skin look kind of soft focus. So it's hiding blemishes and wrinkles. It's blurring things. And in fact... It's acting very like modern blurring compounds that women use today for that same reason. But that's where we discovered the colour, that it's not this bright white mask. Now, the different makeups are slightly different colours, but it's actually a colour that's more of a pale yellow. 
And so when you paint it on the skin, the, the final color that your eye sees depends on the color of the skin you're painting it on and then the color of the makeup and how much makeup. Um, but it's these makeups on very pale skin, because the pigs we use are quite pale, um, they're a very good color match for pale human skin. Uh, one of the big jokes in the, the lab that the students have is that the first time we looked at the color of my skin and the color of pig skin, we decided that I'm the color of a dead pig. Okay. They, they tried to reassure me they was quite a pretty pig. But um, so in very pale skin, what it's doing is it's shifting the color of the skin towards the yellow. And that sounds surprising until you realize that there have actually been studies done in Scots like me, very, these very pale skinned people, where they took Scottish students at university and they fed them lots of fruits and vegetables and they could see it changed the color of their skin to slightly more yellow. But the more interesting thing about it was they were perceived as being more attractive. So it looks like the makeup is mimicking that. It is making you look healthier, more attractive. Just a slight touch because it still looks very natural. It's not an unnatural look at all, but it is shifting things in this yellow direction. And then some of them move it in a pink direction too. So I'm in my 50s and we predict it would change the color of my skin slightly more towards the pink. And what that is doing is slightly pink skin is associated with fertility. So it's making a skin like mine look slightly younger. So this old makeup was made of white lead and apparently it looked quite good, but we can't use lead today. We know it's very toxic. So what's used in today's makeup to get that same kind of effect? The substitute we use today is titanium dioxide, which is this white powder that's very benign, very safe to use. So when we were making the makeup, we said, okay, we'll substitute in the modern white powder and see what that looks like. Because you do get a lot of reenactors and some actors, they have tried to reproduce the makeup to try and get a more authentic look. And they've put the titanium dioxide in, into the original recipes. And what they were hoping was, you know, they could really recreate it by substituting one white powder for another. But you can't. It's actually a different color. And when you substitute in the titanium, that's when you get that bright white mask, you know, that looks really artificial. Whereas the lead did not look that way. It was, it's a more natural color. That's so interesting. I always wondered why when actors try to dress up in the old timey days, it have these white masks on. It sounds like when you recreated it in the lab using the proper lead ingredients, it wasn't white. It was looking pretty good. So far, the, the makeups we've tested, yes. So as you might expect, the women who've come into my lab to work in this project are all women scientists who happen to love makeup. Um, part of the attraction for us is you love science, you love makeup, you get to look at both things at the same time. So we're all interested in makeup and its properties and the way we look. And we've talked among ourselves and we have all agreed that at different points in time, we've painted on this makeup and gone, oh, that's really pretty. <laughs> sure. And 
you know, we've discussed among ourselves, if it wasn't toxic, would you try it? Yeah, you would, because you, you can see that it, it would have these properties. There's one, Boston 1833, this recipe from this early 19th century book, it gives this lovely soft focus look. That's my favorite one because I'm older. Right? I want the soft focus, the blurring. There's another one from the 19th century, Laird's Bloom of Youth. It actually gives you a sort of very dewy, moist, fresh complexion. So, yeah, they're, they're actually, in our opinion, looking at them, they're quite lovely, actually. So these makeups, they're lovely. They're much warmer and beautiful than they're depicted on TV. But are they dangerous? And I guess, did they actually kill people? So some of them were. Some of them were. So they are not all the same. They do not all behave in the same way. But one of the reasons we tried to recreate this recipe, Laird's Bloom of Youth, was in the 19th century, it was actually very well documented that women who wore that makeup could get sick. There was a physician called Sayre who had a number of patients who came in and he did this really careful analysis where he actually got hold of the makeup and he analyzed it and he did urinalysis in his patients. But then also he was looking at the symptoms and they had all the classic symptoms of lead poisoning where you get palsy and there's this wrist drop that you get. And he showed that, yes, they were suffering from lead poisoning. So I wanted to study that one because I thought there was a chance that that one would go through the skin. And did it? We found it takes a long time to go through. It takes about 20 hours for it to go through the skin. But it does go through. It goes through in tiny quantities. So I am painting about 0.3 grams per milliliter is the concentration. So high percentages of lead in this makeup on one side of the skin. And then on the far side of the skin, we're getting nanograms per liter, tens of nanograms per liter, which sounds tiny, but accumulating that every day over time, you can build up a picture that someone's blood lead would get elevated to a point where you would start seeing symptoms from that. I'm measuring nanograms, of course, because I'm looking at very small pieces of skin, but women were painting it over their whole face and their décolletage. You know, it was the whole neck and décolletage. You wanted all of that to look better. So it's, it's a fair amount of skin they were painting on. So yes, I'm very convinced that the reason the woman who had been using makeups like Laird's Bloom of Youth were poisoned was because it was actually going through the skin. So Laird's Bloom of Youth, that one's no good. It did in fact pass through the skin and could get absorbed into someone's bloodstream and perhaps lead to lead poisoning. Yep. What about the other recipes? So there's a couple of things going on because one of the other things that we saw that went through the skin, actually in crazy quantities, was a mixture of white lead and vinegar. And that we tested that because that's supposed to be what Queen Elizabeth I used. And we were actually shocked and we thought the experiment had failed. And when the, the students were 
taking it apart and decanting it. You know, they're actually calling me in a panic saying, Fiona, this looks crazy. You know, you need to come in and take a look at this. And it, it turned out it hadn't failed. It just had gone through in very large quantities. And there what we think happened is the vinegar, the pH of the vinegar, the acidity of the vinegar, what it did is it broke down the outer layer of the skin. The vinegar was doing a bit of exfoliation and I think that allowed the lead to go through. And I think in Laird's Bloom of Youth, the glycerin was softening that outer layer of the skin and we would have a similar thing going on there. So there, there are some recipes that don't have that and some of the waxy recipes, they're not softening the outer layer of the skin in the same way. And so we haven't actually seen in the admittedly limited tests we've done with the waxy makeups, but it doesn't look like it goes through the skin. So whether women got poisoned or not was very dependent on the type of makeup they wore. So now that you have this very specific knowledge, have you dove back into the history books to try and see where this might have influenced things or perhaps be the answer to an unsolved mysterious death or anything like that? I have not yet done that. I am still skeptical about Lady Coventry, quite honestly. This Laird's Bloom of Youth that we saw coming through, this is a 19th century recipe. This is a later recipe. Certainly what we have now found matches up with all the historical information we have. You know, Sayre's data about these poor women who ultimately recovered on some level but were temporarily blind. Yes, I think our data reconciles very clearly with that. That particular recipe I don't think was being used in Lady Coventry's time period. So there is still an open question there about the toxicity of some of those makeups. But in my research in the past, I'd looked at stillbirths and miscarriages and health effects in women. And I did start looking at some of this around Lady Coventry. And there's not the strong picture you would associate with lead poisoning. No one records that she had palsy. Um, I did find that she'd had one miscarriage and, you know, lead increases your risk of miscarriage. But she certainly had three live children, so it wasn't as if she was going through this repeated pattern of it. So I'm still actually skeptical there. I don't think it was lead poisoning that killed her. I don't see any evidence for any of the symptoms of it. The one thing I will hold in reserve, though, is lead does affect your immune system. And the, the one thing I would really like to explore is, I think she probably had tuberculosis. My guess is that's what she died for. And, that, uh, and that's some of the reporting at the time suggested that. And the big question for me would be, did the lead poisoning exacerbate the tuberculosis? Oh, sure. But that's going to be a tricky one to explore. Uh, that'll be a complicated experiment to, to find out. Sure, sure, sure. The vinegar mixture is toxic too. So that's going to be interesting to explore, revisit whether some of Queen Elizabeth's health effects were either due to lead poisoning or exacerbated by lead poisoning. Your research really confirms that there's a mechanism here for some of these white lead makeups to cause women harm. Might not always be true, but it's definitely possible. Yes, and I 
that's the odd thing because I I did go in very skeptical. I really did not think we were really going to measure very much of anything at all. And as a scientist, it's always really interesting when your preconceptions get knocked down, you know. And yes, so to see, yes, some of these makeups really were quite toxic. Well, thank you so much for sharing your time with me, Fiona. It's been an absolute pleasure. Well, thank you very much. I always love talking about white lead makeup. This whole story, Dan, it's got me thinking about how enduring and damaging this pursuit of a particular version of beauty continues to be today. You know, skin whitening products are still used by people of colour around the world, and many have serious and damaging side effects for the people who use them. And Fiona really talked about that in her article for The Conversation. Prettiness does come with an ugly side, the celebration of white skin. That was her quote. We'll put a link to that story and some further reading on this issue in the show notes to the episode. Before we go, we've got a listening recommendation for you. This one is all about the slap heard round the world at the Oscars. Oscar host Chris Rock made a joke about actor Will Smith's wife, Jada Pinkett Smith. In response, Will Smith walked up on stage and slapped him rather hard. Vinita Srivastava, host of the Conversations Don't Call Me Resilient podcast, talked to performance scholar Cheryl Thompson about that slap. Historically, comedians you know, they punched up. So they would make fun of the nobility class because it's fun to make fun of rich people, (laughs) right? They would make fun of power, essentially. So the idea that a black comic would come in that stage, use that pulpit to make fun of the least powerful people in the room, it kind of makes you pause and say, comedy is really in a crisis because it's as if the comedian doesn't understand power anymore, it, it, oh. You know, they're they're attacking the people who are the most powerless in our society. To listen to the full episode, search for Don't Call Me Resilient wherever you get your podcasts. That's it for this week. Thanks to all the academics who've spoken to us for this episode. And thanks to Nihal El-Hadi, Benita Shrivastava and Scott White. And to Alice Mason, who runs all our social media. You can find us on Twitter at TC underscore audio, Instagram at theconversation.com, or email us, podcast at theconversation.com. Don't forget to sign up for our free daily email. Just click the link in the show notes. And if you're enjoying The Conversation Weekly, please leave a rating or review wherever you're allowed to. The Conversation Weekly is co-produced by Mend Marawani and me, Gemma Ware, with sound design by Eloise Stevens. Our theme music is by Nita Sol. I'm Dan Marino. Thank you for listening. <laughs>